0: Spring is on the way, the light is returning to Alaska, and we're all hopeful that the worst of the pandemic is behind us. Saturday marked the two-year anniversary of the first case in Alaska. Does that mean you should throw out your mask collection and abandon social distancing? or is a more cautious approach a wise idea? What has been learned that may help prevent so much death and disruption from contagious disease in the future? Light at the End of the Pandemic Tunnel is our discussion today on Talk of Alaska.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: The Alaska Travel Industry Association provides leadership and guidance to Alaska's tourism businesses for how to operate safely across the state. Members can access updated industry resources related to COVID-19 at alaskatia.org. This message sponsored by ATIA. It's Sobriety Awareness Month in Alaska. If alcohol is hindering you from living your best life, Recover Alaska is here to help whether you're sober, thinking of reducing your drinking, or wanting to support a loved one who is struggling. Recover Alaska is normalizing sober and sober-curious lifestyles through its virtual Sober Lounge. Get inspiration, access resources, and measure your relationship with alcohol at recoveralaska.org. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska.
1: The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters.
0: Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. After more than two full years and six million deaths in the world, we're all exhausted with the pandemic. Even the word COVID is taxing to the ear. But we're certainly not in the clear yet. More than 1,000 people are still dying in our country every day from the disease. Very young children are not yet able to get vaccinated. And immunocompromised people remain vulnerable. So what's needed now? And what will that look like over the next year as we hopefully move forward to a healthier and less anxious future? Here with us today to help clarify the best way to get there is Dr. Joan McLaughlin, Alaska's top epidemiologist. Dr. Lisa Rabinowitz is a physician at Providence Medical Center in Anchorage, and she also works for the state health department. And also on the line is state pharmacist Dr. Coleman Cutchins. Welcome, all of you. Thanks so much for being available today.
3: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
0: You can also join us, Alaskans. Do you have questions about the timeline for vaccines for young children? Are you ready to abandon your mask but nervous about doing so and want some guidance? What do you think are the big lessons that we're all taking away after surviving a pandemic? Give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550 8422 550-8422. 550 You can also email questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. Before we launch into a discussion with our guests today, let's hear from a student in Wrangell who is celebrating that she no longer has to wear a mask at school. Kaylin McCutcheon spoke to KSTK reporter Sage Smiley.
4: I feel like a lot of people are very excited about it and hope that they stay gone But some people think, well, I need to stay protected, so they're going to keep them on.
0: We all hope masks can go away and stay gone, but I appreciated that the students in this story were fine with being flexible. And that's part of what we'll discuss today, flexibility in the way forward. Dr. McLaughlin, get us started here. When you look across the state today at case rates, what does it say to you about where we are and whether it's time to abandon precautions like masks and distancing?
3: Sure. Thank you for that question. So case rates are continuing to decrease in Alaska, but they do remain elevated throughout much of the state. And most of our boroughs and census areas are still showing case rates that are above 200 cases per 100,000 population over the past week. And that's a rough uh, benchmark uh, that the CDC is now using with their community levels guidance. Uh, if you're above that 200 threshold, that's considered to be high. Uh, notably, there are several regions within Alaska that still have very high case rates, over 1,000 cases per 100,000 population per week. Um it's another thing I really want to point out is that it's important to remember that these rates are an underrepresentation of the true incidence of disease because only a subset of people who are infected actually get tested and many of those who are getting tested are doing so on a home test which is not reportable. So we're not we're not getting all of the positives and we don't we don't need to get all of the positives. Um, what we need to do is just look at the general trends. Are the trends going up? Are they remaining stable? Or are they going down? And overall, the trends have been going down. They are showing some signs now that they're they're leveling off a bit, and we're seeing this in many other uh, states across the country, as well as many other countries globally, where we're seeing a leveling off. And that's probably due to a couple of factors. Number one is uh, the BA2 uh, strain of Omicron, which is a bit more transmissible, probably about 30% more transmissible than the BA1 strain. And that is now really taking a foothold, um, a stronger foothold in the United States. Probably about a quarter of the cases um, are BA2 now in the US and a little bit higher in Alaska. Um, But also people are just sort of easing off. People are doing less masking, less social distancing, and that's also going to contribute to more disease transmission. So that's kind of the general picture.
0: Well, thank you for that. And I want to go back to this BA2 variant because I I wanted to ask about that. Um, It's causing a surge in cases in Europe and and a huge lockdown in China. China has ordered 51 million people into lockdown. And... uh, Scientists call it a stealth variant because it's harder to detect, maybe more virulent than earlier strains. It, it seems strange that uh, something could be even more contagious than the first Omicron. And did you say that it is already in Alaska? I was going to ask you about when you think we'll see it here, but it sounds like it's already here.
3: It is, yeah. So we're seeing a slow but steady increase in the proportion of BA.2 cases that um, have been uh, uh, sequenced nationwide and here in Alaska. So nationally, about 23 percent of the cases are BA.2 now. And in Alaska, it's about 35 percent of the cases. And the current estimate is that this this strain is about 30 percent more transmissible than the BA.1 strains. But it's not more virulent, and it doesn't appear to be more capable of evading prior immunity um, through vaccination or uh, or prior infection. Um, one other thing that's uh, on the positive is that people who have had BA one infection do appear to be very well protected against BA two, and. Um, You're right. It is contributing to rising case counts in countries uh, across the globe, especially countries that didn't have a large BA1 outbreak, such as, you know, we we are seeing in China this surge. South Korea is experiencing a big surge. Um, We're seeing a surge also in... in New Zealand, Hong Kong has got a lot of cases. So these are generally places that have not had big BA1 surges. Now, that being said, we are seeing a rise also in some European countries that did experience uh, relatively large BA1 surges.
0: All right, thank you. Uh, before we get on to Dr. Ravinowitz Rabinowitz and Dr. Coleman, um, we have a caller that's uh, asking about variants. Roy is in Akiak. Hi, Roy.
5: Oh, good morning. Yeah, I think you may have and but I need to be clear. Um, it's just that um, when I heard the radio stations that state that the variants may be behind us, uh, I questioned that right away when I hear about that China incident about this. Delta variant being a little more contagious and more dangerous than previous variants. And then the other question, besides that, is will there be a pan vaccine for variants of um, COVID 19? Be listening to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I think um, the question is sort of like will there be a vaccine that can kind of Head off other variants, but um, that's probably not likely, is it? That one could f- one size fits all when it comes to these variants.
3: Lisa, do you want to take that one?
0: Yes, Dr. Rabinowitz, please. Yeah, I'm
6: happy to. So, the good news is that with um, all this great technology uh, we now have with these mRNA vaccines, they're able to tailor the vaccines pretty easily. So, um, all the major drug companies are currently working on. Uh, variant-specific vaccines, and uh, specifically looking at ones that will be able to um, combat a few different variants. So currently, Delta, Omicron, and even BA2 are being worked out in a combo uh, vaccine looking towards the fall if needed. So lots of exciting things happening in the vaccine world.
0: All right. And, and Dr. Rabinowitz, uh, Dr. McLaughlin talked a little bit about this, but is it sort of an empty exercise to keep measuring case counts now with so many people either testing at home or just not testing? The accuracy isn't there for totals, but are there still things that can be learned from monitoring the numbers that are reported?
6: Absolutely. I think following the trends, you know, as Dr. McLaughlin was just mentioning, we're watching worldwide kind of what's happening in trends, watching nationally and in Alaska. We definitely realize we're not capturing every single case, but it's important that we're following these trends. And as you mentioned, have that flexibility so we know when we need to, you know, change things we're doing, um, add mitigation or be able to peel off layers of mitigation moving forward.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about what we need to all know about future mitigation efforts as the pandemic uh, sort of seems to be subsiding, but there are other variants of concern emerging. And so we've got Alaska's top doctors on the line with us, Dr. Joe McLaughlin, the state epidemiologist. Dr. Lisa Rabinowitz is a physician at Providence and also works for the State Health Department. And Dr. Coleman Cutchins is the Alaska State Pharmacist, also with the Department of Health and Social Services. If you have questions, you can join us. one 800 478 8255 is the number statewide. one 800 478 8255 if you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422, You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Cutchins, the state pharmacist here for us. Do you expect that we'll continue to see um, some lingering variants and that people are going to require annual vaccine boosters like flu shots? Or is it more likely that COVID will just sort of burn out at some point as the pandemic known as the Spanish flu did a century ago?
4: That's a good question. And I, I, I think it's tough to make predictions, you know, over the last two years. But I will say, you know, when we think about in general um, with, with viruses, especially the class of viruses that the SARS-CoV-2 viruses in um, mutations are what they do. You know, they essentially don't have good spell checkers. So every time someone new gets infected, is really another chance for the virus to mutate. Um, You know, that being said, you know, like Dr. Rabenowitz said, I think we are going to see sort of better and better vaccines. Um, I think for me, one of my big positive messages coming out of this pandemic is, you know, we were able to... uh, get about a decade worth of vaccine research done in about a year or two, just from the tremendous amount of resources that got put into that. And, and really a lot of the vaccines that have been on the forefront, um, you know, kind of the next technological leap and bound are here now. Um, so I think they will get better. They will cover more strains. And in terms of the interval, you know, it's difficult to say, um, you know, what the interval is going to be moving forward. But But I think we're moving into a better space.
0: And Dr. Cutchins, you said as said something about as we're moving on or moving beyond. Do you feel that we are? Do you feel like we are kind of moving into this phase where uh, this spring is going to look much different, and uh, uh, kind of have a sense of relief about that, or or how are you feeling?
4: You know, I mean, I'm personally feeling a lot better about it. I think that goes back to some of the points Dr. McLaughlin brought up. You know, we do have a very large Portion of the population now that that has immunity, you know, through vaccination or or some degree of immunity from prior infection. And it's just a very different place in time than we were, you know, even a year ago when we had very very low vaccine rates and we were just kind of rolling out clinics or two years ago when we were just trying to figure out what this virus is. You know, we also, um, other positive notes, you know, we have very good established treatment protocols now for both patients outside of the hospital and in the hospital. You know, just as of sort of the last week and last year, we got the um, authorization for the the two first oral treatment options, you know, for patients not admitted to the hospital, drugs that can be taken by mouth instead of IV infusion. So we just have a lot more tools and a lot more resources now than we've ever had.
0: All right. Dr. McLaughlin, I want to go back to you again. Um, Let's talk a little more about levels of immunity in our state uh, understanding that it varies across Alaska. But how might that affect future surges such as in coming weeks after students were on spring break and, and there may be an uptick now in cases? Uh, you mentioned that people that had the first Omicron probably have some um, immunity to the B2 version. Is that correct?
3: Correct. Yes, they, have, they probably have very good immunity to BA2. So, you know, I think we are, as Dr. Kutchins mentioned, we're in a much better place now than we were, say, a year ago. Uh, We have a much higher proportion of the population that has been exposed to some version of uh, one or more of the antigens on these uh, viruses. So either they've been exposed to the virus, they've actually gotten infected, or they've been exposed to one or, or several doses of the vaccine. And so that means that our bodies have some memory of this particular virus and are capable of fighting it off um, more adeptly. And this is particularly true when you look at, even though we're seeing waning immunity over time among people who've had prior infection and among people who've been vaccinated, So there is a risk of reinfection or vaccine breakthrough, but the risk of hospitalization and death still still remains quite robust among people who've had prior infection, people who've been vaccinated. So that puts us in a much, much better place. You know, the other things that I would mention in terms of, you know, what we've learned over the past two years and how we're in a better place now than we were even just a year ago. You know, We know much more about the viral characteristics and dynamics of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We know about its incubation period, its transmissibility, the period of infectiousness, how virulent or, or severe is it. Um, we know the, about the natural history of COVID-19 and long COVID, um, so we know what the symptoms are and what to expect and, and how the disease generally progresses and what to look for in terms of Um, who are the people that need treatment, Uh, some of these treatments that uh, Dr. Cutchins mentioned, and what to do with hospitalized patients. We also have a much better understanding of the epidemiology of this particular disease, who are people in the high-risk groups, such as the elderly, people with underlying conditions, pregnant women, infants, And then also, we know much more about racial and other socioeconomic disparities that we're seeing, so we can better address those disparities. Um, We know that high-risk settings are particularly worrisome for rapid spread of the disease, and so we're really tailoring our contact tracing to really focus on those high-risk settings. On the prevention and control side, we understand the role of non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and social distancing and uh, indoor air filtration, isolation, and quarantine. But now we have really good vaccines that are available. And we even have a monoclonal therapy called EbiShield uh, to help protect immunocompromised people from actually getting infected. And then as Coleman mentioned, just all the different treatments that we now have available. So we're in a much, much better place now than we were you know, six months to a year ago.
0: Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we are. this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking about the future of the pandemic and what precautions people should be taking and be aware of right now. On the line with us are Dr. Joe McLaughlin, Alaska State Epidemiologist, Dr. Lisa Rabinowitz, a physician at Providence and also works for the State Health Department, and Dr. Coleman Cutchins, State Pharmacist with the Department of Health and Social Services. You can join us if you have a question or a comment. Statewide, the number is 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 8422 You can also email talk at org. Dr. Binowitz, uh, what is the situation with hospital capacity right now? How are things at Providence?
6: So, That is the best news of all, is that um, with case rates coming down across the state, with, um, you know, all the efforts that were done statewide to increase staffing and flexibility and conversations between hospitals, and um, we're in such a great place in terms of capacity now. So we're back to basically baseline capacity where we were, um, you know, kind of mid mid-July of last year. Um, We currently have 38 people hospitalized statewide with COVID and only three of those are on the ventilator. Um, So we're in a much better spot. Having said that, though, looking forward, kind of long-term recruitment, retention issues are going to be key. Um, We were able to bring in um, uh, help through this latest surge through uh, staffing solutions and We were able to extend those contracts, the three allowable times. And looking forward, a lot of the hospitals have decided to kind of contract with that SNAP nursing uh, to augment their uh, healthcare workforce. But uh, I think, you know, all the things we've mentioned that are improved um, from even a year ago, and then uh, seeing that we had decreased hospitalizations overall and definitely ICU um, care with this latest surge of Omicron has helped our capacity.
0: And and drilling down a bit there on the staffing situation, um, there's been numerous stories about so many people just becoming too exhausted or, you know, feeling too demoralized and leaving healthcare. Are you finding that uh, both at Providence and, and maybe your colleagues at other hospitals in the state that between the contract staff that have come up, um, that you're able to look into the future and feel like you'll be able to keep staffing levels where they need to be, or is it going to be a struggle with so many having either died from the disease itself or have left the uh, healthcare industry?
6: Yeah, this whole pandemic has definitely put a great strain on the healthcare workforce. And for all those reasons you mentioned, I think Alaska has always struggled um, because we do have such a increased um, tourism and um, kind of medical need in the summers that we've always struggled with kind of balancing that and bringing workforce up. So, I think we learned a lot through this pandemic. Um, You're absolutely right. Um, People are exhausted. Um, My colleagues in the emergency department are, you know, apprehensive even with this lull because we just don't know what's coming next. So, I think Healthcare capacity is definitely um, one of the things that moving forward, we're going to have to work on as a state. And it's definitely not unique to Alaska. This is nationwide. We definitely had a lot of um, people taking contracts that paid higher amounts out of state or left the state. So building resiliency is kind of um, one of our goals moving forward. And this is in it statewide, in each hospital system, and it's going to take us all working together.
0: All right, thank you for that, Dr. Rabinowitz. Dr. Uh, Cutchins, uh, state pharmacist Dr. Coleman Cutchins, we have an email question here that uh, maybe you can assist with. Um, Tom in Eagle River writes, we are both elderly and vulnerable, so we got both vaccine doses as soon as they were available last winter. Then we got boosters as soon as we could in September 2021. We have lots of travel planned this year. Is there a second booster we should consider?
4: Yeah, thank you for that question. So um, that is currently being evaluated um, as of today right now, um, you know, a second booster, you know, for those who received their primary series, then got boosted, then got boosted. Um, that next booster booster um, isn't currently uh, recommended or authorized, but they are there are groups meeting at the FDA um, because there was some data submitted to to consider that. So I, I would say stay tuned um, because I think at some point, you know, it's likely that there will be an additional booster. We just don't know what interval. I don't know. Uh, Dr. Rabinowitz, do you have anything to add to that on the vaccine side?
6: No, uh, but I would say that, Lori, uh, just want people to keep in mind that if you are immunocompromised or at, at very high risk, there is an additional dose for those individuals. So speaking with your healthcare provider to see if you do qualify for that will be important. But just as Dr. Cutchins mentioned, it's being evaluated now, and Um, I think the highest risk groups will be the first considered um, for an additional booster if it does seem warranted at that
0: time. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, We have another question here by email that I'd like to get to. And I'm not sure if this is for Dr. McLaughlin or who might answer this, but I'll put it out there. Janice writes, hi, thanks for the show. Are there any COVID wastewater sewage monitoring efforts currently or in the works for Anchorage or Alaska?
3: Yeah, I can start with that. This is John McLaughlin. Thank you for the question. We don't currently have wastewater testing uh, in Alaska. I think last I heard, HUNA was doing some wastewater testing. I'm not sure if they're still doing that. But it is something we're looking at. I have had conversations with some of my counterparts in other states. It's not uh, inexpensive to do that um, and to be doing it on a, on a daily or weekly basis. So I think at this point, it we're looking to CDC for their guidance on this to see whether or not this really is going to be a beneficial tool going forward for communities to to use and, you know, if there may be federal resources available for that kind of testing.
0: And do you see that as a more sort of accurate reflection of the actual viral load in a community uh, especially in light of the fact that people are doing more testing at home or they're not testing, and so it's hard to get a more, you know an accurate picture that way, Does that, does that help provide uh, um, something that the medical community can use? You know, the wastewater
3: surveillance testing is really um, beneficial for a couple of things. Number one, it's an early indicator of of disease transmission. So, for example, if you've got a community that is um, basically hasn't seen any COVID uh, for a long time, you can use that wastewater surveillance to uh, oftentimes detect COVID before cases actually get detected. Um, The other thing it can be helpful for is detecting new variants. Um, And so I I know that I think Oregon was able to detect a a slight variation in the genetic code of of, um, one of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses that it isolated through wastewater. So those are two of the advantages of wastewater surveillance.
0: All right. We have another email question from Tima, or actually not a question, but... Kind of a statement. And, and I think it's really important to remember this these voices. Tima writes, everything sounds like it's getting better, except if you're immunocompromised or elderly. So I'm an elder that feels like collateral damage because of the way that current COVID information is directed toward the younger, healthier population. The messaging really needs to improve, be improved. And, and so... Um, what are your thoughts about that? We've got three doctors on the line with us that have been, you know, living uh, this 24-7 for more than two years now. What what should the messaging be? Uh, we're trying to balance cautious optimism with still a need to be careful. As we noted earlier, more than 1,000 people are still dying every day in our country from this disease.
3: That's exactly right. I can start with that. I'm sure we all have um, bits that we can add to this. So it, this is a very important point, and this is why everybody needs to take their own assessment of their own personal risk and make decisions that are appropriate for you. So there are a number of things that uh, immunocompromised people can do or people who are elderly or at increased risk to decrease the risk of COVID. Number one is getting vaccinated and getting boosted if you're if you're eligible. If you are immunocompromised, we talked about Eboshelled, which is a long-acting prophylactic monoclonal antibody that people can take before they're even exposed to the virus that will help fight the virus off. Um, also avoid high-risk settings such as crowded indoor settings, um, masking with a, a good high-quality mask, ideally if you're really in a high-risk um, um, if you're elderly or if you're if you've got lots of underlying medical conditions, um, if you're immunocompromised, an N95 mask that's well fit, you know, that fits very well to your face is going to be provide you the best uh, protection on the masking front and get prompt outpatient treatment um, if you do get infected. So obviously, if you have any signs or symptoms of illness, get tested right away. If that test comes back positive, talk to your healthcare provider about outpatient therapy. Um, And then people who live with or frequently visit high-risk persons can also take added steps to decrease their risk of transmitting an infection or importing the infection into the home of the high-risk person such as, again, maintaining maintaining up-to-date status with their vaccination, masking, social distancing, testing, etc.
0: All right. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our conversation about the best way to cautiously move into the future as we're learning to live with an ongoing pandemic as Talk of Alaska continues.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit Live vape, Free at AlaskaQuitLine.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We have Dr. Joe McLaughlin, Dr. Lisa Rabinowitz, and Dr. Coleman Cutchins all on the line with us today. Dr. McLaughlin is the state epidemiologist. Dr. Rabinowitz is a physician at Providence and also works for the state health department. And Dr. Cutchins is the state pharmacist. We had an email um, come in from Larry who asks... uh, For those who are still uneasy about unintended consequences of RNA-based treatments, are there any non-mRNA vaccines in the pipeline? Um, Dr. McLaughlin or Dr. Cutchins, would one of you want to take that question?
3: Sure, maybe Dr. Rabinowitz.
0: Or Dr. Rabinowitz. That would be great.
6: Yeah, so, Larry, the good news is that there are some different options. Um, We have some viral-vectored vaccines, so that's the Johnson & Johnson, and we have seen some risk associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but for some people it will be a good choice for them, and that's, again, a discussion with your healthcare provider. There's also some uh, newer vaccines coming along the pipeline and being used uh, internationally that use some um, different technology with viral particles um, that are inducing that immune response to viral particles um, directly instead of going through the cell machinery with the RNA. So there are definitely some options. Um, The good news is that, you know, looking at these vaccines, especially the RNA, uh, the mRNA vaccines, they've been very uh, safe Um, which has definitely been exciting for us looking forward um, and effective against those severe health outcomes that we talked about. So, yes, Larry, definitely options.
0: All right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Coleman, Dr. Cutchins, I want to turn to you now as a pharmacist. Is there, and Dr. uh, McLaughlin or Dr. Rabinowitz, any one of you can jump in here as well, Is there any more information available about ivermectin and whether it offers help in treating COVID? I get asked by members of the public a lot why we are not bringing more information about ivermectin on air. Has there been any vetted research that you've seen over especially the past year that would indicate there is some merit to this treatment?
4: Yeah, thanks. And that's a good question. Um, (laughs) The story is actually really interesting. So if we look back, you know, two years ago in the early days of the pandemic, um, it was the first time that very extensive computer modeling was ever done to figure out possible drug candidates. These were simulations done on a computer that, you know, essentially on paper looked at drug versus virus. Not in the human, just exactly, you know, the the biochemistry of the two of those things together. So, you know, some front runners were found in there, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, there were a few other drugs that were looked at. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's very different between the way a drug interacts in the computer and in a lab versus the way a drug works in the person. So, you know, here we are two years in. We have a lot of clinical trials now that have been done. Um, and, and unfortunately, when it comes to ivermectin, you know, none of the trials that have made it through the peer review process, that is, trials that have... Been vetted by peers, um, kind of in our primary literature, have shown that it's effective. I think all of us would have loved for it to be effective. I think all of us would have loved for there to be extensive data to support it. But, you know, there have been quite a few very large, well done, randomized control trials that that just unfortunately showed um, that it hasn't been effective.
0: I was sent an article by one person who was asking about it, um, an article that was in the American Journal of Therapeutics and the, the authors were claiming that ivermectin works. But then right in the middle of the article, okay, you had to scroll down a little bit, is an editor's expression of concern because of, of exclusion of some data that rendered the findings invalid. Why, would, why does an article like that stay up? That seems really confusing if the public is reading this and not knowing what to believe.
4: You know, I think the hard part has it been this is you know how difficult medical literature and statistics are to interpret and evaluate um, you know I get sent articles from time to time from people that say look you know this shows that this thing is affected but then when you read through the journal and read through the article um, the article didn't so I think it's important for people you know first of all to check your sources um, you know there's the, the internet is a wealth of information but unfortunately it's not all reliable um, when we search what we would consider, you know, PubMed, which is really the, the world's foremost medical database, um, and look through first-line medical literature and read through that is, is really where we would get our evidence-based guideline. You know, also we're at the point in the pandemic where, um, like, the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is, you know, really world-renowned, um, Experts on infectious diseases, they do our guidelines for things like pneumonia and urinary tract infections, but like they have come up with their own analysis. So if you, if you don't want to read all the literature, um, they have some really good resources on, you know, what treatments have been shown effective and what haven't. All
0: All right. Thanks for that. Uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, if you have questions for the doctors that we have on the line about the future of the pandemic and what you should be doing right now to keep yourself and your family safe, you can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550 You can also email us Talk at AlaskaPublic dot org. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Lorna is in North Pole. Hello.
5: Hi there. How you doing?
0: Good. Did you have a question?
5: Yes, I did. You know, I was reading and listening about Omicron not being as deadly as previous versions of the virus and I thought, you know, is this really accurate? What if Omicron had occurred a year ago what if it if we had gotten omicron instead of delta um i know there's been a lot of effects because of vaccination and previous infection but you know will we truly find out the reality of omicron from the countries that are going through waves of infection now that's just what i'm curious about thank you
0: All right. Thanks, Lorna, for the question. It's, uh, you know, it's a good, thoughtful question about how concerned should people be there? You know, I I think it's interesting that uh, I actually I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, and I am extremely careful. And I still also got Omicron. Um, And A couple of people commented to me, "Oh, you got the good kind of COVID," and I thought, "Uh, "I don't think it's all that (laughs) good." I was glad that I was vaccinated, but I was sick. Um, So, what? um, Going back to Lorna's question, what are your thoughts about you know uh, the lethal nature of Omicron versus Delta, especially?
3: Sure. Yeah, this is Joe McLaughlin. I can start with that. It's, it's a great question, and it's one that is currently still being uh, debated to some degree. I think based on—and this is kind of doing a gestalt of, of the medical literature that I've read and, and the things that I've read about this particular topic—is it's probably a combination of things. I think intrinsically, the Omicron variant is probably less virulent than, for example, Delta. I think invariant is the ability of the virus to cause severe disease. Um, But I think also some of the blunted Uh, severity that we've seen during the Omicron wave has been due in part to prior immunity, either through uh, prior infection with Delta or Alpha or any of the other strains of the virus, as well as uh, due to higher population level immunity from vaccination. So I think it's a combination of things.
0: Mm -hmm. When will very young children likely be able to get vaccinated, the six-month to four-year-old group. What's the, what's the latest on that?
6: Yeah, so in terms of the pediatric vaccinations, we're all, you know, waiting to kind of see what this data shows. The most important thing is making sure they're safe and then making sure they're effective. So as many of you know, um, Pfizer was submitting their data They did find that um, some of the two-dose series for the older children, the two- to four-year-old, wasn't giving quite enough of a protective response. So they're continuing for a third-dose study. And so all of that data will be looked at. We're anticipating that that will go into the FDA um, sometime within about a month. And Moderna also has data Uh, ready to go in for the two to five-year-old. So, we're thinking, you know, um, late spring, uh, April, May time, uh, we should have enough time for the FDA to look through that data and make a decision with that younger age group. We did get some data today um, from the CDC, um, which did show that um, that four years and younger age group, had five times higher hospitalization with Omicron compared to Delta. And so the health implications of that are definitely real. And so I think we're all excited to, you know, get protective coverage for that younger age group when it is available.
0: Mm-hmm. And and following up there, Dr. Ravinowitz' recent studies, the New York Times just reported on this show that 5 to 11-year-olds have very little protection from the vaccine, especially older kids in that age range. Do you think boosters will be recommended for this group, or what's happening there?
6: Yeah, uh, that's another thing that they're looking at currently is kind of boosters for that age group. Um, Again, the good news is it still was uh, protective against those severe health outcomes, so um, definitely for, you know, ICU stays and deaths, we did see a waning of protection, even against hospitalization. And really the key is for individuals, not just um, our young pediatric population, to stay up to date on their vaccines. And, you know, moving forward, um, looking at that age group, uh, it is definite possibility that they may need a booster as well.
0: And what what's known about the why in this age group? Uh what? Why do you think that's happening, that they aren't getting as robust a response, especially in young immune systems? How does that compare to the effectiveness of other vaccines in this demographic?
6: Well, I think that that age group had a smaller dose uh, compared uh, to the 12 and older. So they had a third of the dose of the Pfizer vaccine in that 5 to 11-year-old age group. So that definitely uh, could have played a part. Again, you know, a lot of this data is coming out through the Omicron, which was, you know, much more transmissible. So um, that's another factor as well. Generally, pediatrics and kids have a robust immune response, so they can mount a better response and often last longer. But we didn't quite see that in that age group. So uh, that may be one of the reasons that a booster will be required.
0: All right, thank you for that. We talked a little earlier about um, the what's been learned and um, how uh, doctors and scientists and researchers have learned a lot in this last couple of years. But on the other side of that, what has COVID revealed about the weaknesses in our healthcare system, especially when it comes to disparities or the relationship between rural and urban health centers?
3: You know, I can, I can start with that. I mean, think, I think one of the biggest things that we've learned through the pandemic is um, we've seen huge disparities in disease incidence rates, hospitalizations, and deaths, um, as well as access to treatment to some degree and access to vaccination um, and other resources, um, by certain demographic groups, whether it's uh, race or other socioeconomic groupings. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that we need to work on nationally is is minimizing those disparities. And I don't know, Dr. Rabinowitz, if you have more to add from a clinical side.
6: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, you know, on some um – recent data looking at the last two years um, in terms of rates of COVID and the urban rural divide in terms of vaccine access has been significant. We're talking 25% more people are vaccinated in an urban setting. So I think we are unique in Alaska. We have our tribal health partners who have done an amazing job. And Alaska has actually seen some of our urban areas Um, you know, falling behind. So I think there's opportunities moving forward to, you know, look at our um, disparities, as Dr. McLaughlin um, noted, and kind of, you know, dive into our diverse populations and figure out where we can make, um, you know, improvements in our public health overall. And some of that is, you know, leveraging these partnerships that we've made throughout the pandemic with, you know, private industry, with, you know, healthcare systems throughout the state, we now have those communication lines open. And I think we can do a lot of amazing things moving forward.
0: All right. we Thank you. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll get some more phone calls on the air as Talk of Alaska continues.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at neaalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its 1 million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the way forward with the COVID pandemic. We're going to go to the phones for a moment now. Susan is in Bethel. Hello.
5: Hi, good morning. Thanks for doing this topic. Um, my question is, you know, I read, I've read been reading a lot about this, and they've found evidence of COVID-related mutations in animals, um, farm animals, zoo animals, wildlife, pets. Is there a chance of this mutation bouncing back to humans again? I mean, is this something that could happen? Um, Thanks. I'll take the call um, on the radio.
0: Thanks, Susan. Great question. That kind of combines another caller that had asked about uh, with deer getting COVID, what about dogs? So what is the answer there? Is there a concern about pets or other animals getting this virus and, and then transmitting it to humans?
3: Sure. Yeah, this is Joe McLaughlin. Thank you for the question. Um, it, uh, it certainly is possible that, you know, once you have uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus circulating in an animal population like the deer population, what can happen is that deer population becomes a reservoir for the, for the virus, and the virus will continue to transmit in that reservoir, and it will continue to mutate. Um, over time, just as it is in humans. And it is possible that, um, say it's been you know transmitting in that population for many months possible that you could get a new strain that develops in that deer population that jumps back into humans and um, could cause another wave of, um, of the pandemic. That's one of the theories about what might have happened with Omicron. We don't know exactly where the Omicron Um, viral strain actually came from, but it had so many different mutations. One of the theories is that it may have been um, that it jumped to an animal species, was circulating in that animal species population for a while, and then jumped back to humans. We don't know for sure if that happened, but that's one of the theories.
0: Wow, that is not good news at all. Um, but it's honest and clear, and important that people understand that. We have a, another email question about uh, home tests. Um, Elizabeth writes Other states are collecting home antigen test information. Is there a plan to have a self report process for home testing in Alaska? And uh, she also asks Am I infectious if my home test is still positive? even after 10 days, and I am no longer having symptoms. So two questions there. Is there a plan for self-reporting in Alaska? And then uh, uh, a question about how long you're contagious.
3: Dr. Cutchins, you want to take that one? Sure. So that's a good question. And as these
4: home kits become more available, they're a good option. Um, So there currently isn't a plan. I think it's something that we'll continue to evaluate and discuss. Um, but I think it's also important to remember there are, when we're talking about home, home kits now, it's over-the-counter variety, so that's the test that you read the directions, you administer the test yourself, and then you interpret your own results. Um, there are also home kits that you test yourself, but your identity and your results get validated either over a telemedicine encounter or the sample gets sent to a lab those type of home kits do get counted on our EPI dashboard. It's the pure over-the-counter ones um, where you're, you're doing the test yourself and interpreting your own results that, that don't get counted. Now, say with these tests, the other thing I think it's important to remember is none of them are designed, you know, they're there are yes, no questions, um, you know, none of them can tell you if you're infectious, if you're at the beginning of your infectious, if you're at the middle of your infection, if you're at the end of your infection, um, you know, they just can tell you, yes, I detected the virus, or no, I didn't. Um, you know, in terms of the no's, I'll also mention there are, you know, we do worry more with false negatives in these tests, you know, those are people who test negative, but in fact do have the virus. Um, but the home kits are, you know, a great option. Just encourage everyone to follow the directions exactly um, on the test and do it exactly the way it says.
0: And and what what are the thoughts about if 10 days later you're still pos- show positive, should what should people do?
4: I would say reach out to a healthcare provider. You know, and we're specifically talking about molecular tests. Those are PCRs and more of the tests that are done at healthcare facilities. There are some at home ones. Those tests look for the genetic material of the virus. Um, you know, we we do know that although it's rare, you know, people can press positive on that style test for up to ninety days because there are viral fragments, not complete virus, you know, that can circulate in our body and we can get positives. Now with the antigen style test, which are what most of the at home kits those detect infection by looking at the surface proteins on the outside of the virus. We don't think that people are really getting persistent positives in the antigen-style test. So I think the best advice is, you know, anytime your test doesn't match your symptoms, you know, if you're symptomatic or you have a known exposure but you test negative, that's a good reason to reach out to a healthcare provider. Same on the other side of it. You know, if you have no symptoms at all or you've recovered and you're still testing positive, another really good reason to reach out to a healthcare provider.
0: All right, let's go back to the phones quickly for a moment. Diane is in Anchorage. Hi, Diane.
5: Hi. Um, I'm very glad to finally hear that the CDC recently advised that uh, certain people of a certain age, I think teens through about 64, can delay the second um, uh, COVID shot. And then another, and, and it's been my experience with some family members and friends that Uh, Having it too soon does present some problems, especially with compromised immune systems. And then just recently, another family member visited a pediatrician for the child's first uh, COVID shot and asked about delaying it. And indeed... The pediatrician said there's evidence uh, to, uh, and I can read you quickly what was said. No, please
0: don't. We we were running out of time here. Just get to your question, they, please.
5: They they it was said that there is benefit to waiting for two months, if you can, for more durable immune response. So I hope that people understand they don't have to have that second COVID shot on time to uh, avoid some um, rare. Side
0: effects. Well, thank you, Diane. Let's uh, let our doctors respond here. And and I also wanted to to just go back to messaging. Um, the, the elderly person that said, I feel left out because the messaging is so aimed at younger people, didn't feel like the question was answered. And so kind of uh, help us in this final minute here understand what people should know about that second shot, as Diane asked about, and then... The the clarify the messaging for people who are ready to just throw off their mask and be happy. What about people who are elderly and immunocompromised or can't get the the vaccine?
6: Yeah, so Lori, I think this caller has a great point. Um, following a thorough evaluation of the latest safety and efficacy data, the CDC did provide new information on the interval for that primary series to kind of help healthcare providers recommend the optimal schedule. And that's really for 12 to 64 years old. Um, Sometimes it makes sense to widen out between your first and second dose, so as long as eight weeks. And there's a couple benefits to that. Really, they found that um, the longer interval between the first and second dose can give the body a chance to build a stronger immune response. And it also further minimized the already rare risk of um, things like myocarditis in that young Um, 12 to 39-year-old male. So a couple um, reasons that it's important. A couple things to consider is the shorter interval is still important for immunocompromised individuals over 65 or someone that's really at risk for severe disease. So um, that is an important point. I think in terms of the messaging for immunocompromised, what people forget to take into account as people are coming out of this pandemic, as we're starting to loosen mitigation, for those individuals that are immunocompromised, sometimes that means they're going back to being more isolated because those in the community are no longer masking. There's not as much mitigation happening community-wide. That puts them at higher risk. So it is important to recognize that. And also remember that some individuals will be wearing a mask and uh, understand that that's okay.
0: Absolutely. Uh, As the student at the beginning of the program said, some people are going to keep wearing masks. It was not a big deal. It's just um, whatever people's comfort level is, and that's important, and also to keep others safe. Um, In our final about 30 seconds or so, if we can get to that, Dr. McLaughlin, Is there a point at which the CDC sort of triggers something that says, okay, we're moving from a pandemic to endemic now. Um, This is just going to be around, but it's no longer considered a pandemic. Is there something that triggers that?
3: Sure. So in an endemic state, COVID cases will have stabilized, and it will basically see a reproductive number at around one, which means that one infected person on average infects one other person. Um, But transmission rates may not always be stable. Uh, There can still be outbreaks and waves of infection, just as we see with seasonal influenza. So barring a new variant that evades prior immunity, we might continue to see waves of COVID transmission with decreasing amplitude over time. Okay. The end of the pandemic will be declared when WHO decides that enough countries have a handle on COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. So that's that's I think cool. we're, we're a ways off from that declaration.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Joan McLaughlin, Dr. Lisa Rabinowitz, and Dr. Coleman Cutchins for being on with us today. For more on ongoing efforts to vaccinate the community, check out Alaska Public Media's Talk to Your Neighbor series on our website. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones and social media, Kavitha George helped us out today. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.